Well, thank you, Kay. Some of you know that Kay, without my knowledge of it, regularly picks hymns that perfectly fit with the sermon. And uh, this week she uh, picked one that perfectly fit with the sermon slide. Uh, if you remember the choir saying, See what a morning. It was dawning of the dawning of hope in New Jerusalem. And it wasn't just dawning on them back then. I, I, it was uh, dawning on many, many others since then, as you know. Because we're going to see today that true believers experience glimmers of Easter all through the year. And if you're not a follower of Christ, I'd like to show you how this can be true for you too. How you can experience the dawning of a new day uh, after every dark night of your life so that nothing will ever again be wasted. Whatever it is that you go through, nothing has to be for nothing. In fact, for the believer who believes in the resurrection, the most painful things turn into the best things after the pattern of the cross. It's all over the place in the scripture. And one of those places is in Psalm 103. Uh, If you turn there, Psalm 103, starting in verse one, where David says, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of his benefits, who pardons all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit. We've been going through Psalm 103 Sunday mornings, phrase by phrase. And today I'd like to focus on that one sentence that he redeems your life from the pit because it's at the heart of what the resurrection can do for you. So what is Easter all about anyway? Is it really about Easter egg hunts and chocolate bunnies, you know, and Easter peep candy, which I used to love as a kid? Kids can get it so mixed up thanks to us adults. Like the kid who said, Easter is when Jesus hid eggs for the disciples to find, and then he turned all the rabbits into chocolate. (laughs) Or... I love Jesus. At Christmas, he was born, and I get presents. At he, he, uh, on Easter, he dies, and I get chocolate. Someone said, we celebrate Jesus dying on a cross and rising again by getting a giant bunny rabbit to hide chocolate eggs. And then he says, I can't help but feel that there is a massive gap in information somewhere. Well, today I'd like to fill in some of that gap because one of the things that Easter is all about is that it didn't just happen once. It can happen again and again in your life if you give your life to Christ and he gives you his resurrected life. The resurrection is so important and so central to the Christian faith that you'll find it reflected all through scripture, including here in this psalm in verse 4 where David's talking about being in the pits, which we can all relate to. He's talking to himself, and he told himself to remember that he redeems your life from the pit, as though it's easy to forget. In fact, he begins the psalm by saying, if you remember, forget none of his benefits, because we do forget them, or at least I do, if uh, if you're anything like me. And one of those benefits is this, he redeems your life from the pit. If you're a believer, to redeem is an Old Testament word that means uh, many things, but at root it means to deliver, to deliver from what can really feel like death. It's like it says in Psalm 49, 15, you will redeem my soul from the power of death. He's talking about resurrection there. 
It's like what Christ said on the cross just before he was resurrected. On the cross when he quoted from Psalm 31, into your hand I commit my spirit. Remember that? Then he goes on to say, this was an exaltation. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. That is, I'm dying, but you're going to redeem me from death. This is as good as done. In the Old Testament, redemption is another word for resurrection. And it happens again and again for those uh, who know him. What's going on here in Psalm 103, hundreds of years before the resurrection ever happened, is this. All through the history uh, of God's people, through all their agony, he had been preparing them to believe in Easter Sunday. He'd been preparing them by showing them in their own lives that he is a God who's in the habit of doing these kinds of things. Through all the redemptions that were, that were glimmers of the resurrection. Again and again, he's been taking his people from death to life. And David knew it even way back then. And you know it too, if you're a follower of Christ. What we see here, again, in verse 4 of Psalm 103, is a foreshadowing of the resurrection. It's a, it's a glimmer of Easter, courtesy of the one who indeed redeems your life from the pit. David's using a unique form of the Hebrew verb here when he says he redeems. It's a verb that's called the cal active participle in the Hebrew, and it means this, and you can fill in the blanks by Roman numeral one in your notes, notes that are in the bulletin. It's a verb that denotes, and here's where you can fill it in, usual or customary or characteristic action as opposed to a single solitary action that, that you know, may, may never happen again. And David goes on to give an example of what he means by this in this psalm, down in verses 6 and 7, where he starts by saying uh, in verse 6, the Lord performs righteous deeds and judgments for all who are oppressed. He's generalizing again, just like in verse 4. Here he's generalizing when he says the Lord performs, same form of the verb, righteous deeds in behalf of the oppressed, which again means usual or customary or characteristic action. A particular instance of which was Israel, as he goes on to talk about in the next verse, verse 7. He says, he made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the sons of Israel. He's talking about the plagues of Egypt here and the parting of the Red Sea and all the rest when he delivered Israel in such a big way. Yet still they'd forget right away. Like it says in Psalm 78, they did not remember his power or the day he redeemed them from the foe. We're all like that. David's saying, though, here, it's customary, performs, uh, redeems, it's customary for God to do this kind of thing in both big and small ways to the point that we take it for granted, like, like the rising of the sun, without which we're toast. Just look at the history of Israel, he says, and you'll see. But his point back in verse 4 is that it wasn't just ancient history. He's telling his own soul. He redeems your life from the pit. That is, he's saying, it's part of my own personal biography. He's saying, he redeems my life from the pit too, not to mention yours, as his usual or customary or characteristic way with us, not just once, but again and again. What he's doing on a personal level is this. 
It's what uh, Soren Kierkegaard said that we ought always to do. It's point one under Roman numeral two in your notes. It's a lesson from redemptive history, the first and foremost of all the lessons from redemptive history, and that is this. My life must be lived forward, he said, but it can only be understood backward. It can only be understood backward. David was, of course, looking backward. He was assessing the present in light of the past. And as he did that, he saw this pattern, a a pattern of providence, of supernatural deliverance, both for himself uh, and for his people, because he chose to take a historical point of view, as opposed, you might say, to a hysterical point of view. And it'll be one or the other. And so as a banner over all the ups and downs of life, over his whole life, he's saying he redeems your life from the pit. Problem is, even as Christians, if you're anything like me, when we're in the pits, we tend to forget our history. (laughs) I know I do. And I know better. I teach these things. I'm paid to think about them. (laughs) But still, it's so easy to forget my history when I start go, go, going through some agony. Just like the children of Israel we saw who did not remember his power on the day he redeemed them from the foe. And according to scripture, the great remedy for that is this. If you're a follower of Christ, when you're really in the pits, don't look forward. Don't even glance in that direction. No, look backward. Look backward and you'll see something. You'll see that all through the years, again and again, in every season, uh, in every kind of situation, he's redeemed your life from the pit and he'll do it again. And so I keep telling myself four things because I struggle with this too over and over again so they'll think in. They're all under Roman numeral two in your notes. And you can fill in the blanks. Lessons of redemptive history. Again, first and foremost, life must be lived forward, but you better understand it backward. Therefore, too, be a student of history, not a prophet of doom. Which is so easy to become. Three, don't give trouble a shape, as someone said, before it throws its shadow. Because for your God has a proven track record. There's so many examples of this. It's all over the place in the Psalms and it's all through the scripture and it's all through our lives. So much so that I can say this to you with complete confidence, at least in my better moments I can. That if you're a child of God, If you know Christ Jesus as your resurrected Savior, it may be nighttime now, but a new day will come. It's Friday, as one old preacher said, but what? Sunday's a coming, amen. Weeping may last for the night, Psalm 30.15, but a shout of joy will come in the morning. And in the meantime, thanks to these year-round glimmers of Easter, we we can proclaim the resurrection through all our afflictions. This is so important that Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the the prince of preachers back in the Victorian day in England, did an entire sermon on it. It's titled Songs in the Night. It's one of my favorite of his sermons. He put it this way. 
He said, many a night do we have, nights of sorrow, nights of persecution, nights of doubt, nights of bewilderment, nights of anxiety, nights of oppression, nights of ignorance, nights of all kinds which press upon our spirits and terrify our souls. But blessed be God, the Christian man can say, my God gives me songs in the night. Any fool can sing in the day. When the cup is full, men draw inspiration from it. When wealth rolls in abundance around him, any man can sing to the praise of a God who gives a plenteous harvest. It is easy to sing when we can read the notes by daylight, but the skillful singer is he who can sing when there's not a ray of light to read by. And then he goes on to say this, think Christian of yesterday. Think Christian of yesterday, I say, and you will get a song in the night. Surely there is some precious milestone along the road of your life, one that is not quite grown over with moss, on which you can read some happy inscription of his mercy toward you. What? Were you never sick like you are suffering now, and did he not raise you up from it? Were you never poor before, and did he not supply your wants? Were you never in narrow straits before, and did he not deliver you? Come, man, I beseech you. Go to the river of your experience and pull up a few bulrushes and weave them into an ark where your infant faith may float safely on the stream. I bid you, do not forget what God has done. What? Have you buried your own diary? I beseech you, man, open the book of your remembrance. Go back a little way and lift up the mercies of yesterday from your book, and they will glitter through the darkness, these glimmers of Easter. And God will give you a song in the night. He gave one to Paul and Silas in the Philippian jail. He gave one to, to, to Jonah in the belly of a whale and to David in, in, in the shadow of you know who, right? This is a story that means a lot to Julie and me. We've come back to it again and again recently. David fixed his eyes fearlessly on the giant who was in front of him because he was fixing his mind gratefully on the God who was behind him, who was backing him. And so he said, the Lord who delivered me, backward looking from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear, he will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. He celebrated his past. And so he was, he was centered in the present. He knew his history. And so he, he was able to laugh in the face even of this adversity where his life was on the line, and so he was, he was dead on in his prophecy. He declared what we need to say by way of prophecy in the face of our adversity to all the Goliaths in our lives, whenever and wherever they may be, and that is this, the Lord will deliver you into my hand. And I, I will remove your head from you, the gall of this kid. And I will give your dead body to the birds of the sky for the battle is the Lord's. He's saying, yeah, like you say, I am but a youth, but I've seen something even in my few years under the sun. I've seen his redemption over and again, and he'll do it again. And even if he doesn't, I know where I'm going, and that's the ultimate redemption. But it's so easy to forget this, isn't it? 
We sing about it all the time. Oh God, our help in ages past. Be still, my soul, for God doth undertake to guide the future as he has what? The past. Ponder anew what the Almighty can do. We sing about it on Sunday, but what about on Monday? The promise of Easter is just this. It may be Friday, but Sunday's a-coming. Because it's his usual, customary, characteristic way with us. If you're a follower of Christ, whether you're in the pits personally or congregationally, he always works transformationally to bring life out of death. Always. It all works, Romans 8, everything for good, that is to the glory of greater Christ-likeness. Maybe you're thinking, how can I know this for sure? How can I know this will happen if I become a Christian? Well, the apostles knew this well. They believed it to the point that they died for it. And if you think about it, it was one of the greatest proofs of the resurrection. I, I was reminded of this a few weeks ago. We were sitting on the couch in my wife Julie's parents' home. It was after dinner, and we were talking and reading and, and uh, uh, wa- watching Jeopardy, <laughs> uh, which now that I'm 50, you know, 65 reminds me of how much I've forgotten or how much I never knew in the first place. I forget which it is, but it's one of those two. So anyway, there we were when all of a sudden my father-in-law, Ed Doubling, starts reading out loud. He starts reading out loud from, from this book called The Case for Easter. A journalist investigates the evidence for the, revela- uh, for the resurrection. And um, Dad was so impressed that he couldn't help but start to read it out loud to us. And so what did he read? Well, Lee Strobel was an award-winning legal editor of the Chicago Tribune and a skeptic, but he went through a search for truth and found it. And here's how he concludes this book, The Case for for Easter. I started my original investigation as a spiritual skeptic, but after having thoroughly investigated the evidence for the resurrection, I was coming to a startlingly unexpected verdict. One final fact, described by a respected philosopher named J.P. Moreland, clinched the case for me. Moreland said this, When Jesus was crucified, his followers were discouraged and depressed, so they dispersed. The Jesus movement was all but stopped in its tracks. Then, after a short period of time, we see them abandoning their occupations, regathering, and committing themselves to spreading a very specific message, that Jesus Christ was the Messiah of God who died on a cross, returned to life, and was seen alive by him. And they were willing to spend the rest of their lives proclaiming this, and most of them were executed at the end of their lives in torturous ways. For what? For good intentions? No, because they were convinced beyond a shadow of a doubt that they had seen Jesus Christ alive from the dead. That insight, Strobel concludes, stunned me. The disciples didn't merely believe in the resurrection. They knew whether it was fact or fiction. Had they known it was a lie, they would never have been willing to sacrifice their lives for it. Nobody willingly dies for something that they know is false. They proclaimed the resurrection to their deaths for one reason alone. They knew it was true. 
And based on the historical data I had examined, Strobel concludes, I became convinced they were right. And there's a lot more evidence of that as well. So that's what my father-in-law read. And once he was done, I turned to him and said, Dad, I think that'll preach. (laughs) What do you all think? I think it just did. Based on the historical data, the apostles were not prophets of doom, even as they looked at the Goliath of death itself. No, they were students of history. History that was not fictional, but factual. It began when they witnessed the resurrection, and they went on to witness countless reflections of the resurrection in their own lives. And you can as well. Because they knew from their own experience that, get ready, he is risen. He is risen indeed. As you'll see at the bottom of your notes. And you can know that from your own experience as well. I'd like to have every head bowed and every eye closed. If this is what you want today, I'd like you just to raise your hand wherever you are. Yes, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Having raised your hand, you need to take one more step, and, and, this, and that is this. If this is what you want for yourself, all you need to do is pray, which is the second step. Just pray silently as I pray out loud. Lord, I've come to the place where I need your life because I'm tired of mine. I need your biography to be my own. I need you to bring life out of death for me. I'm sorry for what I've done with my life. I believe that you died for what I've done. Thank you that You died and rose again so I could live like you. So right now I receive your resurrected spirit into my heart. Now, now go to it, Lord. From here on out, I'm looking to you alone, to Christ alone. Bring on the dawning of a new day for me and a golden harvest through the power of your resurrection. In the name of Christ alone, I pray. Amen.